Hello, nerds, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds Comic Podcast, episode 54. I am Carissa, and I am joined by another nerd, Ryan. Hello. Together, the dynamic duo of us, we take on this week's comic. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now and go read your week's books, and then come on back. It's the pause button. We'll still be here. It's okay. Each week, one of us picks our favorite book of the week and this week i am that nerd and this week the pick of the week goes to champions number two our companion song is teenagers by my chemical romance because well it's about teenagers and it has a lot of lines that i feel are applicable to the teenage experience and things that are represented with this comic and i just you know it seemed like a fitting thing so take a listen Gonna clean up your looks with all the lies in the books to make a citizen out of you. Because they sleep with a gun and keep an eye on you, son, so they can watch all the things you do. Because the drugs never work, they're gonna give you a smirk, cause they got methods of keeping you clean. They're gonna rip up your heads, your aspirations to shreds. Another cock in the murder machine. They said, I'll say that you're scared of the living shit out of me. They can care less as long as someone will bleed. So dark in your clothes, I'll try to buy a lipos. Maybe it'll lead you alone. But not me. Teenagers scared of the living shit out of me. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> Champions, number two, Marvel Comics. Written by Mark Wade, pencils by Huberto Ramos, Ramos, inks by Victor Alozaba, and colors by Edgar Delgado. Since the whole hashtags champions uh, event at the docks. Hashtag champions. Yeah, hashtag champions. They have moved to impromptu camping trip, it looks like. With, and it seems like it's Miss Marvel's idea to do this as like a bonding experience to see if they're even going to be a team. Like if they'll work as a team. You know, she has the whole like team building exercises in her head, like trust, trust falls. falls. Yeah, and things like that. So they're around a campfire and they're all cooking different things. The Hulk, I like the Hulk stick. <laughs> I love that. Everyone's making like s'mores and he's got a complete ham and a ribs rack of ribs. And and- joshing on each other, you know, giving tease and he's like, well, it's all my calorie. You know, I need a lot of calories. And they start doing the kind of like sharing power story. Each of them go one by one to say like what they can do. Miss Marvel's idea is that once they know each other what they can do, they can plan tag team moves. Jack Formation Alpha, like that kind of stuff. They go one by one and explain, which is really nice. If you're jumping into comics and you're like a teenager or really a young reader and you've never really read a lot of comics and you don't know what they this are, this is actually really good for that. For if you want to introduce someone to this series, because it basically gives you the rundown of what each of these characters can do, which a lot of comics don't do that now because you kind of they expect the readers to know. Yeah, but I think this is like a jumping off point for people. I think they handle it really well. They do. do they tell you each of their powers, which are kind of different than kind of the older versions of them? They have slightly different powers, you know, mm-hmm. so it's kind of good to know that. But you also get to learn a lot of their personalities while yeah. they're talking to each other and interacting with each other. Nova's like, my powers are just my helmet. 
and they start trying to play keep away with his hat until they like <laughs> tell Cho he has to play nice. I like that where he's like, give me back my helmet. It's, it's not a hat, it's a helmet. And uh, Viv is like, a helmet is a subset of hat. <laughs> Viv, to me, is kind of playing a singularity role. She's not the cutesy, adorable, but she kind of has naivety to her, but only because she's so literal almost because she has a computer mind where singularity is just is naive in a way i'm definitely growing to like viv a lot more <laughs> i think she is a great character he shows telekinesis to the hulk and everything like that hulk explained his powers and like well how far can you jump and he's just like blasts off and i love it because he's gone forever and there's like panels of them just looking it's like the exact same panel in a row <laughs> it's like four panels of them looking up in the air yeah and i like how they say the, st- the stench of testosterone and body spray <laughs> <Pax> body spray <laughs> He's gone. I'm like, oh, chill. <laughs> and then, like, the most teenager-esque part comes next, where they realize that Viv has Wi-Fi. <laughs> and they're like, oh, you have Wi-Fi? And then I'm like, that is so perfectly and captures the essence of teenagers nowadays, or just even just society on their phones nowadays. We can't be disconnected. I like that that's the thing that they're most impressed by. <laughs> Not her yeah. ability to, you know, phase in and out of things and, you know, fly and shoot lasers. It's <laughs> Wi-Fi. <laughs> so she has Wi-Fi and her password is, I, I think it's a cute nod, Blade Runner, do Android stream with electric sheep kind of thing because it's even androids can cry, which is also sad. It gives you a little personality into Viv also, I think, with that. Yeah, she's had a rough life. And then I thought this part was very interesting it really nods on something that we've discussed and I, and I know you agree she is being Captain America they even say there's only two why can't there be three and they're basically touching on that point where she is turning into the heart and the moral compass of the Marvel Universe absolutely essentially coming the modern day Captain America and I loved that they touched on that I think it's really interesting that they are willing to look at a Pakistani American Muslim woman and see her in the same role as Captain America that her moral strength and clarity of what's right and wrong is what lights this team on fire and gives them purpose. It's something we've been saying for a while, and I really like it when our theories and our beliefs that we tend to agree on as a whole here, as a, as a group, get represented. Kind of like Minority Report comment was nodded at in the last issue of Civil War. I like it too when she stops them dead in their tracks. Spider-Man like cuts her off and is like, just a minute, and she's like, no, you don't do that. Yeah. You don't get to talk to me like that. Mm-hmm. I'm not here to ruin everyone's fun. I want us to have crazy adventures in space and see lost cities and and have a great time, but I don't want to die either. Yeah. We need to do this with justice without unjust force. Nova's clearly the more inexperienced. Yeah, he's. I think he's definitely the youngest of the two. Like, yeah. Miles is pretty young too, but Miles has, he's seen some stuff too. Yeah, and then that's where we start getting our first hint of someone watching them in the woods. It's obvious who it is. The ominous red glow from the woods. I like when they do their trust falls, and Viv is standing behind Nova, and he goes to fall, and she's like going to catch him, but she's programmed to phase when solid objects come to her so she doesn't catch him. The facial expression, uh, I'm lacking trust. I totally want to use that. I'm lacking trust. This nails their interaction. They all seem very believable uh, and realistic teenagers and they interact in a believable, compelling way. So then they play like a truth or dare kind of game. And Nova's trying to show his game. And then they start talking about first kisses. Nova, it's clear right now, Nova has a thing for Viv and he's like trying to go in to kiss her and that's when the Hulk returns. Oh, Cho. (laughs) 
in the realm of traditional bonding campouts. So they did the like, kind of truth or dare, the trust fault. And then Miss Marvel suggests ghost stories where you see Viv try to process it and then she kind of gets a little offended because she thinks that it's a passive aggressive kind of nod towards her. A microaggression. She said microaggression. It didn't even occur to like Miss Marvel that that would be taken that way. Points out the similarity between ghosts and herself that they're alive but not, human but not, tangible, intangible. Back to the whole landing in on them with a big scene and then whoosh, he gets like blasted out of nowhere they're like oh no we're under attack and they all you know try to get into formation and then Scott is jumped by Nova his visor comes off so then you know his vision's out of control and Viv goes and covers his eyes and he's like it's okay I can cover my own goddamn eyes as long as I'm not going to be sucker punched he's like I can't just close my eyes this is young Cyclops this is the Cyclops that they brought back in time from the original which they do touch on that he is not old Scott, he is new Scott. He's there, and he followed them, and he said the reason why he attacked the Hulk is that he saw a Hulk-sized something jump in all of a sudden, and he thought they were under attack, and he was watching them, but not sure how to approach. He is interested in what they're doing, with what they have going on, and he would like them to consider having him join. He heard Miss Marvel's speech and was moved by it and wants to do something good, but nobody trusts him because old Scott, like they say, this is like recruiting the young Hitler onto our team. Yes. And then they bring up this whole thing about, you know, predictive justice, that he hasn't done anything, and their whole point is judging people based on things that they haven't done yet is wrong, so... You know, maybe yes. they should let him onto their team. And that's when Viv has her kind of revelation. It spoke volumes that without second thought, he stepped in to protect them from, you know, a, a threat that was like eight times his size. You know, the Hulk, right? And he's like a skinny little no, nobody Scott. So without hesitation, he jumped in to help them and didn't know what the danger was. He just knew that he thought they were in danger. Bring them back to the campfire for their talk. This is my favorite part. <laughs> When they start looking for Viv, because she's missed. The minute I saw the panel before the last panel, the reaction panel, as you were, I'm like, I already knew what it was. <laughs> I just had a feeling. The Hulk and Viv totally making out against a tree, it looks like. Yep. It's a really impassioned drawing. They're going to town, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I also like that he's, like, so much bigger, so he's actually, like, to be the same height as her, he's on his knees. He's kind of got her, like, pressed up against the tree. Their teenage hormones are going off. I feel like it really captures teenagers, and it has the seriousness, the young. I really like what it has going on, the interactions and the humor and the relatability to it. Yes. These are all very, very relatable characters. Moves from serious to comedy to tension and drama. And they're just, they're so believable and heartfelt and good kids, but still kids. There's tension. I mean, the Hulk and uh, Scott don't get along. Right. So they all have their dynamic. And I'm excited because sometimes the teen ones don't do so well. And I really like this one, which I'll get to it later. But we have an issue with a team where I'm like, I don't care about what's going on to any of these people. I'm engaged. It's funny. I'm enjoying it. I give it four and a half Hulk console hockey. I also really liked it. I gave it four and a half. Even androids can cry. Over to DC for Batman number 10 from DC Comics. I Am Suicide Part 2, Assault Antiprisca, 
written by Tom King, pencils and inks by Mikkel Janin, colors by June Chung. So this one, Batman has assembled his Suicide Squad version with Catwoman and Punch and Judy and the Ventriloquist and I want to say Bronze Tiger is the other person. Mm -hmm. So they're going after Santa Prisca and this issue has two ways it's telling the story. First of all, there's, there's a thing that Batman says repeatedly to Bane that he's here for the Psycho Pirate. He needs him to save someone who needs to be saved. If you turn him over, I'll go away. Refuse to turn him over and I'll break your back. Batman says that over and over and over again throughout the the issue. I was confused by that. I was like, first I thought, I'm like, is he like an android Batman? What's going on? He's not here to fight Bane. The Bane is an obstacle in his way, but Bane is not the, you know, the goal that he has. He yeah. needs to get the Psycho Pirate to go back and save Gotham Girl. But the use of that was just making me think that he was either like an android or brainwashed. I was like, it was an interesting choice to have it over and over again. And the choice of having him threaten to break Bane's back mm -hmm. is very interesting because obviously, well, for those of you who know, Bane is the one who broke Batman's back. So it's interesting that that's the threat he uses against him. And that comes up later in the issue, too. Yeah. So you've got that repeating throughout it. Then you also have this letter that's being written from, you're not quite sure who it is at first, to Bruce, saying they want to explain why they did what they did, why they killed all the people that they killed. And as that story progresses, you come to realize that that's Catwoman that is writing the letter yeah. to Bruce. And she's talking about her life in the orphanage that the Wayne Foundation had. And, you know, her life was terrible. And there was always a picture of, like, the Wayne family, you know, hanging up like the big portraits. And you always look at them and, you know, picture their perfect life. And even though Batman's parents left him, they didn't do so intentionally, but her parents did. And uh -huh. that she was made into an orphan, not by a murder, but because her parents just basically ditched her. And that she had to learn to sneak out of the orphanage to do things. And that's kind of where she picked up the beginning of her cat burglar skills. And then she ran afoul of some people who ended up burning down the orphanage and killing all the kids inside, except for her, because she could get out because she's young Catwoman and she could see like the portraits of the family melting and burning while that was going on and that uh, all the people she killed that she's on death row for killing were all part of that criminal organization that she went and she hunted them all down and killed them all which I found was pretty interesting from yeah. the last run of Catwoman kind of summarizing that and explaining it to you. So that's kind of a neat little narration that the letter doesn't exactly tie to what's going on on the panel, but it's a really interesting story that's going on. So Batman is in his Batplane mm -hmm. and the Santa Prisca Air Force is chasing him down and shoots him down and he gets captured by them and taken to Bane. And Bane tells him that he's off the Venom now and he's not strong enough to break Batman's back again. But he is going to throw him into the same jail cell that we saw in the last issue, him as a little boy being trapped in, and that he doesn't think Batman is going to last the night in there. And before he does throw him down, though, it reminds me so much of a wrestling move, and I'm sure there is an actual name of it. Throws him down on the ground, and he grabs his shoulders, pulls his back back, and then, like, rams his knee into his back, which really messes up Batman's back. So he's kind of like, his back isn't broken, but he can't really use his legs very well at this point. So he's down in the prison cell that's starting to flood, and he starts, like, punching holes in the wall so that he can climb up the wall and kind of use it for this weird like yoga thing to snap his back back into place which was really strange that part I 
was I didn't know what he was doing until he did it. Then it kind of made sense. So then he gets up to the top of the cell where the iron grate is while it's flooding. And he's able to knock the grate out and climb back out. And now he's going after Bane. And that's where Catwoman and the ventriloquist are there. At first, I didn't understand why he wanted the ventriloquist. So I actually had to look him up and do some reading on him. And the guy is actually a criminal genius mastermind at planning things. So I think that this is actually the ventriloquist's plan to get Batman into the prison. That being captured and brought in is easier than trying to break your way in. So now they're in Santa Prisca prison. They're going after Bane. They're going after the psycho pirate. And Batman, when he comes out, like his uniform's all ripped, his cape's torn, he's bloody, he looks pissed. And Catwoman's there, and she looks pretty damn awesome too. So I like this one. It was a little strange with the thing with the bat. I did not understand that at first when it was playing out back back into place i love the part where she's talking about their kisses and them not staying and stuff like that and i thought that was really interesting when they kiss it's perfect but it never lasts i like the romance aspect that is definitely one of them and so i really like that part and i like when we're walking back in now i'm going in to break his back because you know he didn't comply with his request so now i really am looking forward to the panel where you get the the mirror image of the scene where bane breaks batman's back mm-hmm. that, where batman breaks his back i think that will be amazing like a weird nego Toya kind of thing. Yes, I think that'll be great when it happens. Although I do have to say, I kind of feel like Bane is going through his own stuff here. You know, that he is trying to get off of the Venom. I mean, yes, he's still a despotic warlord and all of that, but I think he is trying to get better. So that'll be interesting when it actually comes time to confront it. It's more like you're interrupting me. It's not like I'm not up to any good. It's like, I'm so frustrated with you. I have my own shit to deal with. And then you come in here, Bat? You know, he's in the middle of his own Bane comic. (laughs) And then Batman comes in and starts fucking his shit up. Where his, like, Bane celebrity rehab edition, he's detoxing and coming in and you're saying the same thing over and over again, like a broken record. Not giving anything to work with. You're really stressing me out, man. I'm trying to kick this stuff and you're making it really hard. I think in its own way kind of sad if Bane has to turn to the Venom to defeat Batman. That would be interesting to see Batman again create his own opponents in a way. Yeah, I think it's definitely a setup issue. It's confusing when you read it, but the payoff I think is worth it. I think in the end, I would give it three and a half broken backs. I gave it three and a half the kisses never last. Moving back to Marvel, Spider-Woman, Marvel Comics, Scare Tactics, written by Dennis Hopeless, pencils and inks by Veronica Fish, and colors by Raquel Rosenberg. This one's so sad. It is. Opens up with how she's giving her scenario of how she handles things, how she compartmentalizes her life, and how she can't be really apologetic for it because this is the only way she can stay sane. Does that when she's on the job and fighting some D-list criminals, that she's not thinking of her son's ear infection or if he has a cold. And when she's at home with her son, she's not thinking about her issues with Carol. She needs to be completely in the moment. She needs to be in the moment, dealing with it as things come along. And so she's fighting like... It's like a version of Iceman, but it's the Blizzard. So he's just like, I'm gonna get you. But if I tussle with the Blizzard is what you want. I love that look on her face. Like the little scrimps look. She's like, want is a strong word. I like that when she slams him into the garbage, he's given his supervillain speech and he's like covered in banana peels (laughs) and like coffee grounds. I love it where she's talking about, this is how I cope with my never ending working mom guilt. I hear you, sister. (laughs) 
think a lot of people do. I think this comic is speaking some deep truths about a lot of things. So he blasts her with his blizzard powers, and he's like, oh, I froze you. And I love her line back where she does thumpity thump thump, and he's like, oh, nuts, look at Frosty go, and she's like, what bam? <laughs> that is such a clever play on that word. I love that. was so cute. That was a one of the happy, laughy points of the book. Yep. And then she's super cold. Super yeah. cold, frozen to her bones. We get, which totally reminds me of the Gamora panel from last week. Oh, just the eyes and the shadow? Yeah, the yeah. eyes and the bodies of shadow. She slams open the door, scares her babysitters. And so she's just burr cold. She's going to go take a shower. She's like, I'm just going to do that. And then I'm going to go back out. I need a dry costume. And she realizes that Roger isn't there. And he's like, yeah, don't mention it to him. He has a thing he had to do. It's cliche. She's like, no, no, I appreciate you guys. It's cool. I did love his line where sometimes you say extremely strange things without very little prompting. Like, hey, that sounds like <laughs> me. I like that. <laughs> Yes. But, but there's a really <laughs> strong conversation where he's just like, no, no, Roger's very sensitive. It's like this whole thing building up about how sensitive he is. And he doesn't want to disappoint her. And he really likes her. And she's like, yeah, I get it. It's cool. I'm not going to say nothing. And then she's in the shower and she's like, instead of like shower beer, she's like shower granola. Yeah, because she's hungry after her fight. That was weird. I really actually like how that panel is drawn where she's in the shower with her hair wet. Veronica Fish is a great artist. Yes, no. Like, um, she did a lot of the Archie comics, the new ones, mm-hmm. and has done some other stuff. And I really like her art. Yeah, I remember staring at her. Well, not because she's naked; you don't see nothing. But I was like, "That's really well drawn." It's so Roger's mysterious appointment. He got a lift in his outfit, yeah. and he's going to like some the D-list villains bar. They're the Rotary Club for bad guys, like cheapy bad guys. Yep, there's beer. There's a pool table. We don't know what he's doing in his mysterious appointment. So we go back to the place where Jessica said she had to go afterwards, which was that Moon's Hollow, which is the ex-wives of some D-list villains that from issues uh, arcs ago. And they basically set up like, it looks like, imagine like Stars Hollow from Gilmore Girls, but run by all women. And they basically sustain their town by running touristy like festivals. Like the best farmers markets around, basically, is what it seems like in antiquing. So there's funnel cake, and they pretty much say as long as there's funnel cake, they're successful. The one girl who's giving her kind of like the revamp tour, her business is taking off deuces like some Hollywood types that saw her like hot rods and stuff. You know, she runs into the couple of the women and, you know, they have a good reuniting, like hugs and Jessica fucking Drew and hugs <laughs> and loves. Roger's daughter's there. I didn't know she lived there. I like how you see her in far in the background with like the little like huh over her head like you see the two lines she saw her from way across the street yep. and she runs and she's super happy you know they had that beach trip so and then you meet roger's ex-wife and she is not a happy lady Ooh, look at her no. face she is a pissed off woman she is mad well roger's friend is screwing with her visitation time so she's not having it and she's like yeah maybe this would be better to, for you to catch up on your father's weekend and basically drags her off with like a super resting bitch face look like not, not even resting is she just, that's not resting that's active that's active <laughs> yeah. those lip facial expressions on some of those panels are epic veronica fish does really well at drawing facial expressions yeah like on that same panel you've got her active bitch face going and then you have jessica drew kind of doing that puzzled kind of pursed lips eyebrow raised mm-hmm. you know both of those are really good facial expressions her other friends tell her not to 
to worry about because her and the porcupine have something else. The issue has nothing to do with her. And Roger's hanging out with Ben, kind of talking about how, you know, after his fight with the Sandman, how he's just really good and he's really proud of himself. He wants to do just right. Old porcupine's on the case. Yeah, he's feeling pretty proud of himself. And that's when Ben's like, I know what's really going on. He calls him out on his love for Jessica. I thought you would really like I did, and it was super... I love the when he's like, I don't know what you mean. And he's like, looks all like nervous and like, he's like that big nervous oaf. It's just it's so cute and precious. <laughs> he's like, oh yeah. And, but I'm just her big dumb sidekick slash part-time Manny. And he also doesn't want to mess up her life. He knows how hectic and compartmentalized she is. So this would just complicate things. So he's going to try and be cool and just be her friend. And Ben's like, can you do that? Can you really be friends with somebody that you have yeah. feelings for like that? It's like I'd rather live with it than with that. And that's when he's cut off and he starts freaking out and he's pushing uh, Ben off and Ben's like, well, what's going on? He's like, stay here. And he basically doesn't hear a thing where he knows what's going to happen, I think. He figures it out. He sees I don't it know coming. if he knows exactly what's going to happen, but he knows something yeah. really bad is going to happen. He tells Ben, stay here no matter what you see or hear. Don't Which come Which never out. goes well. If someone says that, something bad is happening to them. That's, oh, yeah. That's like a movie trope, that line. At first, I'm like, okay, I'm not that worried. It's all the D-lister dudes. Maybe they're going to give him a hard time, kind of like the Sandman did for changing teams. And then I'm like, oh, but they're on those skiffs. And then I'm like, hmm. The gliders that the Hobgoblin has. It's like, so hey guys, what's up? What's the good word? And then evil bear armor, bear mad. And he punches him, breaks his mask. And they start giving him a wallop and you know, the whole traitor. It's a beatdown. They're curb stomping him pretty hard. Well, it says traitors get stomped. That panel where it's kind of them all in silhouette and him just lying on the ground and them just stomping on him. It's just, they do really well when they use sounds repeated throughout the issues. They did it in Jessica's prison. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the tapping of the baby in here, where it's like stomp, stomp, stomp. It's brutal. They are beating the shit out of him. Off his costume, he's there like in his boxer shorts. He does not look like he is beat and bloody and can barely keep one eye open. And that's when we see the hobgoblin show up and he's saying how nobody breaks a contract with him. And he's like, but we just had two separate deals. And he's like, and you just broke the last one, which I don't really think he broke it because then he continues and he says, you know, I lie like a good business person. He's just saying how evil he is and how he's doing this no matter what their bargain was oh he kicks him that silhouette where he kicks him and the blood goes shooting and you see him. the blood goes shooting out at first i thought they were just gonna tie him up and throw him over the edge and that maybe jessica was gonna swing and save him or something was gonna happen nope the hobgoblin is a piece of shit murderous evil bastard he puts the pumpkin bomb on him puts it on his lap ben has to walk eyes off laughing uh just a crater left and then them flying away and Ben stuck staring at it and it's uh, they don't do it quick either when he puts the pumpkin bomb on him there's the panels where it's just like tick 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 uh-huh. you can see him just staring at it and there's nothing he can do and then there's the explosion and you can see I mean, you don't see body parts or anything no. like that this isn't like a Marble Max issue but you can see the crater that's left from the explosion so poor, poor <sighs> porcupine I know I like porcupine he was so nice and then it goes back to home just kind of taking a night off it was her night off to be home with the boy and she is paraphrasing a tired mother's version of a story that she's reading to the kid (laughs) or you skip over certain things and you kind of shorten the story and make up your own it's really cute realizes the baby's asleep and she gives him a little kiss a little little heart panel that's nice and she takes him to bed and as she's putting him down there's a knock at the door ben and he's just like i couldn't do this over the phone and she's like 
what could it be? And he's like, she's like, wait a minute, where's Roger? And then he just starts shaking. That's it. It just ends. She doesn't, obviously he's going to tell her, but she hasn't told her yet. It's pretty bad. Veronica Fish's art in this is a triumph in the way that she can do reaction panels. I mean, she does the action really well too. Her mastery of facial expressions is great. And the way she does panels, like little heart. Mm -hmm. And then just the close up of her mouth saying like, where's Roger? She knows when to use close ups on certain body parts within like insets into panels it's how they handle their panels with the movement that you like or with the inset and the facial expressions it it carries a lot of emotion and i really like that i liked roger he was a goof he was a lovable goof and especially to see his arc because he's gone on for more than just this arc of when they relaunched Spider-Woman with number one. He was the 12 issues before were basically his rehabilitation and learning how to not be a villain and, you know, palling around with her and learning stuff from her. Then she got pregnant and he stepped into that nanny role. And now he was just starting to become decent enough himself to fight C-listers, you know? Yeah. And it gets taken away. It was almost my pick of the week, but it's like I didn't want to reward it for being so sad. <laughs> Without the pain and the sadness, you can't have the joy. You got to have those losses in your art. He's like a kind of guy that when you're painting your living room or something, like he shows up to help you paint, but like kicks over the paint because he's clumsy, but he brought tacos. So it's like, oh man, (laughs) you're a lovable guy, but sometimes you fuck things up. I gave it four and a half working mom guilt. I will give it four and a half no hard feelings, which is what the (laughs) hobgoblin tells him when he puts the pumpkin bomb in his lap. (sighs) Oh. I thought this was going to be a fun-loving Halloween issue. No. Welcome to the horror. So I'm taking us over to Image, over to Eisner Award-winning Southern Bastards. Southern Bastards number 15 from Image Comics. Gut Check Part 1, written by Jason Aaron, art by Jason Latour. It's funny to me because this issue is about football and about the South, and I'm not from the South, and I don't like football, but I am fascinated by this. I think that the characters are really compelling, and you're seeing them in moments of crisis. Everything that's been set up before, all these intersecting plot lines are coming to kind of like a head here. Coach bosses, his defensive coordinator, who's been his friend forever, and kind of when he was a struggling football player, was the one who kind of guided him through. He's dead now. And everything's falling apart because of this. So the running Rebs lost to Watumpka really badly. And this is causing the whole town to fall into chaos. Like the whole thing this town unifies around is their high school football team. And when that's not working, all the cracks and corruption in the town start becoming like not worth it. So you've got everyone sitting around the barbecue place that Coach Boss runs. I'm talking about the football team and what they need to do. And Coach Boss comes in. And as soon as he comes in, everyone stops talking about all the mistakes that they're making. And they're like, well, get him next time coach totally different tone as soon as he walks in in his little you know man shorts that he wears <laughs> it's so weird but whatever it works for him i guess you've got this character whose father was killed by coach boss and in boss's barbecue there's a, like a baseball bat stick thing that he has it's covered in blood they hung up over the restaurant because when he beat the guy to death in the street everyone thought he was going to try and cover it up but he took the murder weapon he hung it up and kind of like dared anyone to do anything about it kind of like a total like power display here <laughs> so his daughter is back from the war she's there for her vengeance so you've got a lot of interesting things with the football team practicing and training and one of his little like thug henchmen because the coaching staff is also like the town's mafia like organized crime so he's got this one guy who's you know much better at the crime part than the football part and they're going to play another team so he tells the coach that he's got a plan to deal with them before they even get to the football field that they're going to go over to the guy's house and beat him like in the head with like a baseball 
bat, so he gets like a concussion, and then they won't put him in the game, so they'll never have to deal with him. And Coach Boss is like, you piece of shit, don't ever come on my field again. You can still keep doing your crime parts that I have for you, but I don't ever want you on the, the field again. You know, I might be a murderer and a crime boss and all of that, but, you know, some things are sacred. Like, that's where he draws the line. You don't mess with the actual football itself, which comes back wrapped mm-hmm. in a bow later on in the issue. You then have the sheriff meeting with a woman who you find out was, like, his high school sweetheart, and she's trying to arrange a meeting between him and, like, the mayor's wife to overthrow Coach Boss, who runs a lot of businesses in town, controls all the crime, and obviously is the football coach that everybody, like, loves and respects. So they want to get rid of him. And now that he's losing, like, now's their time to strike. And he's super pissed off at it that, you know, they would use his personal relationships against him. And so he goes to meet at the football game with the mayor's wife, because the mayor's had, like, a stroke, and he's paralyzed and can't do anything other than whisper to people to kill him, but nobody will, because he's completely miserable. And she tells him that it wasn't her idea to use the woman, that it was the woman's idea to go to him, because the mayor's wife thinks that he's, like, a drunk who's, like, in Coach Boss's pay, and that he's just kind of fucked it up again by, you know, having this conversation at the football game and not in private like they're supposed to. So then this is kind of an interesting point to me where they're going up against another team. So they play this game and they lose again. So they're going up for their second or third loss in a row against this team that they do not think that they can beat. And Coach Boss is pissed. He's like ripping like big screens off the wall and smashing trophies. And in this kind of this moment of defeat, he tells them to call that guy they threw off the football field because they're going to go over and do exactly what he said they were going to do to the next team. So he like storms out of the barbecue place and grabs that like hickory stick baseball bat thing that he has that's covered in blood from the last person he killed and they're going to go mess up the other football player the other high school football player which I thought was interesting because Coach Boss is kind of at his end here where things are unraveling and as terrible and evil and you know murderous as he is the last arc was basically spent explaining to you who he is and that football really is something sacred to him and now he's had to cross that line too and then you've got the daughter of the guy that he beats to death outside sitting in the place with a duffel bag that has what looks like a shotgun inside and she is going to go to kill him but she can't bring herself to do it like her hands are shaking and she can't pull the gun out to do it and that's kind of where it ends i think southern bastards is amazing like it's a complicated story that it really helps if you've read through the entire thing because jason aaron first of all is a spectacular spectacular writer his characters one of his great strengths is no one is entirely good and no one is entirely bad. They're all multi-layered. So you see all of these flawed, broken individuals kind of colliding into each other in this swamp mess of corruption and death. It's a joy to me to read. What do you think of it? How'd you like the football? I don't like the football. It's got the devil, Bobby Boucher. It is a dark comic. Man, those people are drawn nasty and dirty and gritty. Jason Latour really adds to it as well. They are not pretty folk, most of those people in that comic. They are just hard living. But it really sets the picture and you know the sets the scene and paints a not so pretty picture it is involved you really get sucked into that world the attention to detail in those drawings are great it's really not a comic for me like i this is not something i'd pick i don't really care for it on a personal level but it's really good won the eisner i mean it is it is it's really good but it's not 
something that I would pick up on my own. These people are broken and dangerous. But because it's so real is why it's so good. Because it's handled really, really well. I read comics escapism and fantasy and having fun. And I do like to like the horror and some serious drama sometimes. But this is just drama, drama, hard truth, real life all the time. It's real talk all the time. But really well done. So if you like that and you're looking for that totally read this i'm not saying that i don't like it that it's bad it's really good it's just not what i'm looking for for my source of entertainment i can see that it's jason aaron and jason aaron can do no wrong so give it a try i would actually recommend starting back at issue number one if you're gonna read it it's just you have to know what you're getting into if you think oh this is gonna be a fun romp uh i will give it four running rebs i'll give it three and a half hickory bats Speaking of those who are total bastards and unworthy. The Unworthy Thor, number one, Marvel Comics, The Hammer from Heaven, written by, again, Jason Aaron. Pencils and inks by Oliver Copiel, and colors by Matt Wilson. This book looks great. Yes, I'm very intrigued by it. First, I just want to start off by saying when it's talking about Odin's son hanging out with his goat, and it had that picture of the goat over his shoulder, I was like, Power Goat, biz now. Power Goat all the way. (laughs) It's Power Goat! It can be kind (laughs) It totally looks like the same drawing. I'm like, Power Goat Biznatch. I couldn't help it the whole time. I was like, where's Christina? I thought the same thing too, yeah. Not the only one. I'm actually curious. So it shows what Odinson has been doing all this time, how his life has changed since losing Monir. I didn't actually know the story of how he lost it. Like, I didn't read those issues, so I thought this was really interesting. They were having a dream. There's feces showing up on satellites and some eaten, and then they saw an axe, and so they decided to contact Odinson. Odin's son. He doesn't call himself Thor anymore. Yes. And then there's the epic picture of him shirtless with his just cape and his power goat. Well, I like it because in Norse mythology, that is how Thor gets around. Yes. He and Loki will often, because you can murder the goat and eat it, and then you wrap up its bones in the skin, and then it like regenerates overnight. Power goat, goat power, power goat. I mean, that was a DC comic and this is Marvel, but still, I'm taking it as the same thing. He decides to fight some trolls. He's trying to figure out what's going on. There's a lot of space trolls. He says um, he's only good at smiting and drinking if drinking counts. There's lots of, like, Viking, Norse god uh, fighting action throughout this comic. If you like that kind of thing, it's pretty good. It's a bloody Thor comic. Yep. Goat ramming trolls and... Biting trolls' arms off. Doing his power goat thing. Trolls slamming Thor's head into the moon's surface and people getting cut in half with axes. This is like an extremely violent issue. Like if you were to flip through like an old heavy metal issue. This is drawn better because heavy metal's drawings are usually pretty bad. This is like a heavy metal album come to life in their fight scenes, I feel like. After the epic fight of epic vikingness, he's on the moon and he starts reflecting like, this is where it happened. This is where I fell. This is where I fell by a whisper. I still cannot unhear those words. Then it's not the Watcher, but it's, I guess, what came after it. He calls itself the Unseen. Gives him basically a clue that, wow, okay, Thor has your hammer, but there's another. And it seems like it's the one from the Secret Wars. And it fought its way through the dimension back 
to this one. And he, he's like, oh, well, you just have to go get it, basically. Because the Hammer of the Dead World belonged to a dead Thor, so you might as well be a living Thor for it. You know what I'm saying? Goat comes up. It's like, okay, Secret War Thor, I'll go get his hammer. So he's like, well, where would it have gone? It's like, well, if he, you know your hammer was missing, where do you think he'd go? He's like, oh, Asgard. I love that picture of him riding on the back of the goat through space. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous and awesome. I'm obsessed with this goat. I'm, I, I'm not trying to kid you guys. Like, that's what made this comic for me is that damn goat. The unseen is like, I fear I've already shared far too much. Well, it's interesting to me. So you've had the Watcher and now you have the unseen, right? And there's this question. This is like maybe a, a tangent for like philosophy where you talk about, you know, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to see it, how do you know it happened? Like that kind of thing. And one of the answers is there's an unseen, unblinking watcher that watches all of creation mm-hmm. and that that is what allows everything to be observed without itself being observed. So it's interesting to me that you had both first the watcher and now you have the unseen. So I think Jason Aaron obviously knows this argument from philosophy mm-hmm. and is putting it in. And the watcher is not really supposed to interfere with things. And here, the unseen is definitely interfering with things. Say it interfered too much, too, as well. Yimmer's beard. This is not possible. Asgard's gone. At first, I thought it pulled an Alderaan, but then it's implied that it was taken. Yeah, I think it was stolen. What weird Thor dude is that, or who is That's that? That's Beta Ray Bill. Is it? Oh, let me zoom in. Oh, you're right. Yeah, I was so jazzed when I saw him. He's drawn so much cooler. I think the last time we saw him, he looked kind of goofy. This looks badass. So this does look bad. Okay, that makes more sense then. And he's like, no, take my hammer, which is not the same, not the one he's looking for, but it will help him. And then he kneels down in front of him and lifts it up to him. Like, yes. oh, that's just spectacular. It's a really good one. They're going to go team up together and to go find who took Asgard. Here's the, what the arc's going to be. Ta-da! This is a hell of an introduction. I was pleasantly surprised. I really like this one. You get the burly fighting in there, along with some self-loathing, and then, like, clues, and then goats through space, and then Beta Ray Bill. I mean, come on. Pretty good. Jason Aaron knows how to write Thor. I mean, he knows how to write everything, but Thor, I think, is an especially strong point for him. I gave it four power goats, so you had to know. That's where you're going. I gave it four and a half Beta Ray Bills. I was really happy to see him back. So... I'm taking us, we're still in Marvel. We've got Death of X number three from Marvel Comics, written by Jeff Lemire and Charles Soleil. Pencils by Javier Guerin and Aaron Cooter. Inks by Jay Liston. Colors by Moro Hollowell, Jason Keith, Will Quintana, Matt Miller, and Andrew Crosley. So everybody and their grandma was on this book, which I, you would think with that many people on it, maybe would be a little bit stronger. It's not bad, don't get me wrong. It's just is kind of like a very serviceable book that is plodding along and telling its story. I wasn't particularly wowed by anything in it, but it was perfectly serviceable. So it's kind of the fallout from the Inhumans dropping everyone with their new Inhuman who can cause everyone to pass out or fall asleep, I guess, who's not an Inhuman. Like, his power doesn't work on Inhumans, so they're unaffected by it. So you've got the Inhumans are saying, kind of questioning whether that was like a good idea or not a good idea. Emma Frost and Magneto are kind of watching it on a television monitor. And of course, they can't see what anyone's saying. They just see like, oh, the Inhumans are really happy to turn back the battle, you know, and are kind of like high-fiving each other and whatever. And they think they're celebrating them taking down the X-Men, which is not what they're doing, but you can't tell that from the video that they're watching. So they're talking about people are starting to wake up and the X-Men are really strong. So they're probably going to be the first, some of the first ones to wake up. So maybe we should get the hell out of here. And she's like, no, we're not going to run. 
you know, we're going to explain to them very reasonably and calmly what we did and why we did it. You know, it'll be better to tell them here now than try and come back to them to tell it. I love the picture of where they all fell asleep and you have Iceman who's fallen asleep on his little ice bridge that he makes to like fly around on. It's yeah. really funny. It basically looks like a really bad frat party that everyone is passed out on the floor from. They're the ones that were sitting there saying like, oh no, Storm is really a reasonable woman. Yeah, until you zapper you yeah. know so they go through all of that stuff that, that's taking place and then there's a kind of interesting part to me where they go to round up a d-lister not even x-men just mutant that they found way back in the day called alchemy who can molecularly manipulate things so his powers are not super useful and he's like wearing his shorts and like sweater because you know they interrupted him at home so he does not look nearly as epic as the rest of the x-men walking around in their super cool you know outfits but he's game for it so storm wakes up and she at first just thinks that everyone's dead when she sees them and she's kind of happy that they're not but she points out that the whole city is asleep except for the Inhumans. So they go to talk to the Inhumans. Maybe talk is too kind of a word. They basically go to, to have it out with the Inhumans. And there's some pretty cool panels of the whole team of the X-Men coming up to vigorously discuss things, I guess we should say. So they start kind of yelling at each other. I do like this where Iceman basically blasts this dude in the nuts with a <laughs> uh, blast from his like cold thing. He's like, you don't like having powers used on you without your permission, do you? Yeah. And then that's when they, you know, they're all getting ready to use their powers and start fighting each other. Some people are trying to calm it down, and some people are getting ready to fight, and that's when Magique pops out of her dimensional portal through Limbo, knocks Downer, and pulls him back into Limbo with her line, uh, come along, little man, when she drags him back through the portal, right. which was pretty awesome. I liked that she wasn't really there to discuss things with anybody. She was just grabbing her prize and getting the hell out. And that's when Magneto shows up and starts like throwing like steel girders around at everyone to trap them and keep them pinned in place. They look kind of cool, except for Wolfsbane, ah! who I love Wolfsbane, but she looks like dog shit she here. Looks super cute! What are you talking about? I was like, Wolfsbane! Super Horrible. cute little werewolf girl. Terrible. Uh, Terrible. I disagree. It looks like a like mangy rat terrier. She, she looks, looks super cute. Horrible. Well, I guess you listeners, you're just going to have to look at it and see for yourself what you yeah. what you think of her. Yeah, she's one of my favorite characters, so maybe I am a little more sensitive to her, how she's supposed to look. So Magneto's putting them in like a steel cage, and the Inhumans, of course, are going to have their counterattack next issue. But that's where you cut back to all of Scott's X-Men. So you've got Scott and Emma Frost and, and all of them talking to this new guy. They want him to go and start manipulating the Terrigen Mist to basically disable it. I kind of like this panel where it's the cool strut towards the camera and there's just the goofus dude in his like regular clothes walking with them so scott gives him you know the big speech about you know you can make a difference here this literally is life and death i'm not going to tell you what to do but if you help us we can live if you don't we're all going to die so what do you say you know do you want to be an x-man and he's like yeah x-man that sounds good that was death of x it had moving the plot along i didn't feel like it really stayed with any one character long enough to really give you any reason to particularly care about anything that's going on here mm -hmm. but it is kind of advancing the story along there were some cool images but overall it was all right i wasn't too impressed with it it was okay like i was happy to see wolf spain that was one of my highlights i like got the conversation with him trying to pick his name where they're like dude you don't want medusa name if you don't pick a code name she names you and it's awful and you can't get back yeah, she'll pick something from like mythology or something yeah. it's gonna be horrible and then they pick one mark like, oh yeah i like that one and then like correcting each other i like that whole thing about the name this is like a mid-range comic it wasn't like wasn't gonna knock my pants off or anything like that but i didn't hate it either it was interesting enough yep. but not great i ended up giving it three superhuman 
drunken frat parties. I gave it three ice your junk. <laughs> I did like that. Yeah. <laughs> that was funny. All right, so off to Crazy Corner. Full Killer, number one. Marvel comic written by Max Bemis. Pencils by Dalibor Taljik. Salajik, I think. But. Inks by Jose Marine Jr. and colors by Miroslav Merva. I didn't leave out any vowels in there. There just are no vowels in that last name. I heard you have a hard time saying names and I get ones I just, I have no chance. I'm going to butcher them. I was really surprised with this one. I was not expecting this. What Looney Tune deep cut am I reading? And then starts off talking about a man purse, by the way, and not like a euphemism for your junk, like, you know, a guy actually carrying a purse. And it's a psychologist. Like, I want to say hipster psychologist, reformed bad guy, who's now a psychologist for S.H.I.E.L.D., and he has, like, this wannabe Red Skull who calls himself, like, Red Skull Jr., but his real name's Rodney, on, like, his psychologist therapist couch. Do you really think walking around with dry blood on your face is a, a good thing? While he's talking, he's, like, that whole kind of therapist, you know, they're off in their own world, not really listening to you as much going off. You start hearing about his history, how he was a stone-cold killer, and he used to dress like a father. It was like, not a good look. Zorro's dandy cousin. His whole MO is that he would kill people who were foolish, hence the name Fool Killer. And then at one point, someone took up after his name, you know, after him, this guy named Kurt, but he was killing things like neglectful parents and stuff like that, which, you know, he thought, you know, those people are people who could be reformed. That's not quite that foolish. And he thought it was like overkill. So he, during this time, he's using it as exclamations. Like, look, I understand wanting to take your name after someone. It's not always good. The blood on the face smells like nickels and butt sweat. It's not good, man. He's like, wash that scabbiness off. Talk about your dad. Like, my dad never touched me. Well, I like that where he's giving the psychoanalyzing thing and then he starts slipping into his own stuff about, you know, his, like, dad beating him. I also like where he talks about the uh, the fake Weezer glasses, how he yes. wears them so he can have that dramatic moment where he takes off the glasses to, you know, give the patient a insightful glance. He's working for S.H.I.E.L.D. now and he's, like, reformed. He likes this new life he's made for himself in Queens because Queens is going to be the new Brooklyn because Brooklyn's super cool right now. He's got his uh, his little dog. He's got his man purse. He's got a really nice apartment. Get his artisan coffee out of a window. And the guy he's talking to on the phone with S.H.I.E.L.D. is clearly evil, it looks like. He said, oh, I have to go. I have to go meet with Tony Stark and talk about some really big things. So he hangs up and then the dude just takes the dude out with like blood splatter. Like kind of reminds me of the those panels from Black Monday Murders where the guy's just sitting there and just the splatter happens and doesn't even care. So there's like some back rooms, black ops, gone rogue kind of thing going on with S.H.I.E.L.D. that this guy is in charge of. That's what it seems like to me. Something nefarious is afoot. And then we go back to his girlfriend and like... <laughs> this part's great. <laughs> yeah, knee socks and like her camisole. And she's like, come on, you're leaving me here and I want you. And he's like, I don't know. She wants him to dress up in his outfit. So he comes out in part of his costume. She's like, I've been such a fool. He's like, all right. <laughs> they have their sexy time with him and dressed in his manly vigilante outfit. <laughs> I see that he lost the hat, so there's another session with this Red Skull kid, which he shows back up again with the blood on his face. Apparently that didn't stick. I like that he uses the toy Cosmic Cube to hypnotize him since, you know, the Red Skull was obsessed with the cube. He's telling him, pretend this is the real Cosmic Cube, not just something from the gift shop. I want to see why the Red Skull resonates so deeply with you, and I do actually like the pink panel that runs through, like, it's Hitler telling the Red Skull to rub his corn. I was like, 
<laughs> I could laugh so much. How, like, the Red Skull is, like, a knockoff of Hitler, and then he's a knockoff of a knockoff. They're out to eat at some, like, super trendy thrice-cooked bacon rice cakes Chinese food place with his girlfriend, and they're just... He's disturbed that his super hipster evening out is being disturbed. He gets a call from his patient, and he's like, oh, no, fell off the wagon. And he shows up in some warehouse loading dock district, and he sees Red Skull Jr. there with a bunch of bodies. And he's like, oh, I'm so sorry. He's like, oh, I'll help you. And then, yeah, he uh, kills the Red Skull Jr. because he was a fool. And then it goes, I thought this was interesting because then he reverted too. So it's like this whole time he was mostly kind of psychoanalyzing himself in a way. So that was a really interesting take. What does he say? like when he when he starts killing people again when you're on a diet and you have a, a twinkie and you tell yourself it's just one but you know you won't be able to stop for a while and then he's there in like his underwear with like a machine gun <laughs> and like the half of his armor like upgraded costume yep. like he just won another buy it's like to be continued and it's like he's crazy pants i mean he's just as bad like i mean he's not as dumb but it's like it's like a hipster playing bad guy because i think this is really interesting because this is written by max bemis who's not a comic book writer he's the lead singer for the band say anything which is interesting to me because this is a very competently actually really well written book so it's interesting to me how a musician can take their skills and translate it into this Mm-hmm. And also, Max Bemis has talked about his struggles with manic depression and, like, other things. So his take on this, like, psychology is, is interesting as well. Yeah. I was not expecting this to be any good at all. I was actually kind of resenting having to read it. And this was a this was a joy. When I saw that it was assigned to me, I was like, fucking Ryan giving me the crap one. We all know it's going to suck and I have to cover it. And then I read it. I'm like, huh. <laughs> not so bad. Yeah, it was surprisingly good. Really insightful, both about kind of that hipster, yuppie, like upward mobile experience. Had really good insights into the psychological makeup of this. Had really funny kind of action scenes. The stuff with his girlfriend was amusing and interesting. Mm-hmm. I just, overall, this was a hundred times better than I thought it would be. Yes, I totally agree. I ended up giving it three and three quarters man purse. I will give it four nickels and butt sweat. So we're still staying in Marvel. So we have Occupy Avengers number one from Marvel Comics, written by David F. Walker, who you may remember from Shaft, and he also does Power Man and Iron Fist. Pencils by Carlos Pacheco, inks by Rafael Fontarez, colors by Sonia Obak. I don't know if an Avengers book is really the right title for this. I think the title is very misleading. Yeah. So this is basically Hawkeye kind of deciding what it is you do with kind of the rest of your life after you've done something really horrible. And he's kind of on this journey, and he's in New Mexico because he's heard that there's trouble with the water supply. So this reminded me a lot. They call it Occupy Avengers, so I think they're trying to have a social justice message here and be kind of relevant. So it reminds me a lot of Hawkeye at Standing Rock. I thought the same thing. Pretty much what it reminded me of. So he's at this town in New Mexico because their water is being poisoned somehow, and he wants to do something about it. But it's not like you can punch poisoned water in the face. Not like that. It's not as simple as that. And he also is having a hard time because everyone's coming up to him and telling him that he did a really good thing taking out the Hulk and, you know, the Hulk was a danger and he's a hero and all that. And he's like, 
that was my friend. You yeah. know, I killed my friend, and people were calling me a hero. You can't stand people congratulating him for killing his friend. He had to do it, and Bruce told him to do it, so it's not like he necessarily regrets having... Not He would still do it again, I think, but he doesn't want to be called a hero for doing so. That's when, you know, everybody at the diner is there to see, like, the celebrity, and they're all taking selfies with him and all of that, and he just kind of wants to eat his burger, but he, you know, it's just sitting there getting cold, and he keeps kind of glancing back to it. That's when the sheriff and her deputy show up, so the deputy is Red Wolf, who I don't know if you remember from Secret Wars and some other stuff. So he's, I actually, Red Wolf, I'm not too clear on if he actually has any superpowers or if he's just an Olympic level Native American guy. I, I'm not clear on what, if he actually has any powers or not. They're not exactly on a team up, but they both happen to be at the same place at the same time. They go back to the village to talk with everyone, and you find out that the Native American reservation used to make its money by selling water to the town, that they had the reservoir and like the river ran through their lands, and they sold the water, but the water's become poisoned from companies they dumped there. So now everyone in town has to get their water through like bottled water that's like trucked in. Again, very similar to like Flint, Michigan, and Standing Rock, I think, are inspirations for this comic is what it feels like to me. So he talks to them and at first they're kind of giving him a hard time. You're just here to make yourself feel good about helping the Native Americans, you know, us poor helpless people and you're going to come in for a day and then like right off into the sunset and leave us still with all our same problems. And he tells them he's not, you know, that's not what he's here for. He's going to investigate the source of this water poisoning. So you get some scenes of people in like jeeps with like machine guns chasing him around on like his motorcycle. So there's explosions and people shooting. And yeah, he explains why he uses bow and arrow, how it's like... Yeah, that it's personal. Called a handwritten letter in the age of text messages. Yeah. And I do like that when he starts shooting people, and this is very similar in Green Arrow, when he shoots people, those arrows go into flesh and bone and do damage. It's not like he shoots the arrow and it hits a rock and hits the guy in the head or something. He's shooting people in the legs and arms and very surgically taking them out with his, his arrows. So there's a bunch of jeeps chasing him around and people firing guns and stuff and he kind of drives his motorcycle off cliff into like the ravine and they're putting up and like circling around to go and get him and that's when red wolf shows up on horseback with like his wolves with him looking pretty badass i have to say and he and hawkeye they have that you know classic kind of superhero meetup where they're like we're not teaming up but they clearly are mm-hmm. They at least need to team up to fight off these guys and figure out what the heck is going on. They have a battle. They're down in the canyon, and they're like, why is there water down here? I was just down here, and it was completely bone dry. And they're like, are you sure that there wasn't water down here? He's like, I'm positive. This riverbed was completely dry. And that's when it's Hydro-Man who comes out, who's the water at the bottom of the canyon, and starts drowning them, trapping them in the water and drowning them. Not Chammy. Different puddle guy. (laughs) Different puddle guy. (laughs) I don't think Chammy can use his puddles to attack you. I think he can just turn into a puddle. I don't know. I mean, I get what they're trying to do with it. It's just, I'm not particularly intrigued by it. They can't decide whether they want to be like a deep social commentary or an action adventure, and they don't give enough time to either one to really grip my interest. And by trying to set it like really real world when it was just Hawkeye and Red Wolf who have really no superpowers, you know, just like Olympic level people doing their stuff. And when they were up against guys in Jeeps with machine guns, it was very grounded. But then when you introduce goofy ass Hydra Man into it, it kind of breaks that immersion into like this is trying to deal with a real world thing. So I, I wish they had kept the power level kind of the same. If it had just been people without powers fighting each other, I think that made have made the story a little, you know, more street level and more interesting. It was okay. I mean, like, yeah, it didn't really 
really grabbed me and my interest that much. What I thought was the most interesting was the beginning. I really like how he sees what he did versus what all these like the fans and regular people who don't know see it. Like I thought that was that conflict and that him dealing with that was more interesting to me. Yeah, I could have done with an entire issue of him just hanging out in that diner. I will give it two and a half Hydromans. I gave it two and a half Cold Burgers. Still with the Avengers. Avengers number one, Marvel Comics, written by Mark Wade, pencils and inks by Mike Del Mundo, colors by Mike Del Mundo and Marco D'Alfonso. This is the one where I was mentioning before where I wasn't really super rooting for this team. I just... It felt like a weird B-list Avengers. I'm with you. I was really disappointed. Like, I was reading Avengers, and I didn't feel like I got the Avengers. I mean, I liked that Hercules was there. I didn't feel like they really gelled very much. Wasp, Thor, Hercules, and Captain America slash Falcon. I'm sorry, I have a hard time calling him Captain America. You know, I, I like that he got promoted, but dude, it's still Falcon. They're fighting some weird, like, <laughs> ice dragon wolf thing. Oh, and Spider-Man's there in the vision at one point they show up. They're all trying to figure out their plan and what they're going to do. I, I did not like the art in this. It's weird. It almost feels like it's, it was drawn with pastels, a chalk. It's very, has like a texture to it. I, yeah, it's very painterly in yeah. a way. And I just, I don't know. It's not very crisp and clean. It's like impressions of the comic. The younger members that were part of the Avengers. So Miles, Nova, and Miss Marvel took off. And they see it with Iron Man being in rough shape. So that kind of gives you where the time frame is on this since everything's all wacky. Another thing about this that I did not like is that this really brings Spider-Man front and center and it's fucking stupid. And I hate the fact that Spider-Man is pretending not to be Peter Parker and that people don't know it. And it's just this goofy ass retread of Iron Man's from like yeah. 80s. And I just, I can't stand it. They're at Parker Industries and he's basically selling them on this will be their new Avengers Tower panel where it's supposed, it's Peter and he has the like car dealership swarmy like grin holding his tie look to him. Uh, yep. It creeps, it sleaze it. Like that to me is not Peter whatsoever. What the hell is that? I don't even think that, that's not even Tony. That is just, it's just, it's so uncharacteristic. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't fit right. And it's such a terrible smarmy yeah. lie. It insults the intelligence of everyone listening to it. The beads of sweat, the, you know, moving your tie around. It reminds me of in Glen Gary, Glen Ross, or The Simpsons have their parody. The like sales guy who's always trying to sell you stuff. It's just, that's not Peter Parker. So yeah, he's trying to sell them on the tower. Like, look at this great adamantium lace glass. You can see anything coming. That's what Hercules is like, for example. And he's like pointing out into the night sky where there's an explosion. Spider-Man takes off after the rest of the Avengers take off. When they get there, the Vision is fighting. Kang and the Gladiator. Which are the same person, but from different points in time. And they're asking, where's the child? And they're having their time battle. You know, whole Avengers assemble. And what it is, is yeah, the Vision trying to figure out how to stop someone who can control time. Because he kept, relentlessly kept attacking and wouldn't give up. Went to go take Baby Kang. And they decide they're gonna do like eye for an eye. They're gonna do what he did to them. And this is that. This is the part that I think is really interesting. The panel that shows them basically attacking all the Avengers as childs at some point. I really liked how that 
look. Yeah, I did like that, where they're going back in time to take them out before they're... So how they got that, they went back in time and saw where the Vision put his memories, because when they tried to extrapolate the memories from his computer brain, it said that the files were already moved, so that's how they figured it out. But yeah, they're going to be merciless. The broken panel where it shows James Foster's broken bracelet, broke baby mobile, a pacifier in a bottle. It's not a happy scene. That, to me, was the only thing that was interesting. Like, oh, well, what's going to happen with that? They don't there, you know, the whole kind of back to the future, like, butterfly effect. I'm curious to see what that happens. But, man, I was not interested at any of it until that near that part. Like, I was just like, are you kidding me? And what's funny is if you told me that the same person who wrote Champions wrote this... I would not believe you because this, everything that was great about champions is lacking yeah. here. I gave it, I guess, two messing with the timeline. Two baby snatching. Bad writing, bad art, characters I don't like, and interacting in ways that are not interesting. I will give it one and a half Avengers Assemble into something better than this, please, because this is fucking terrible. From being one of them that's my pick of the week to another one where just like, oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, pick of the week and worst comic of the week that we read. Alrighty, those were the books we read this week. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com. And I have no idea why I said that weird, but you know. Or our Facebook page, <laughs> Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter or on Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music. And on Stitcher. And on SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. <laughs> we also have a second podcast for the PC gaming for the cheap and broke, Four Color Nerds Broke Gaming. Be sure to come back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds.